Aquanullius, I think you'll agree, is a dangerous ongoing furphy. Together we must build the foundations of trust to overcome political complacency. This is Making Waves, the podcast bringing you water stories from around Australia. We are amplifying the lesser heard voices of Aboriginal people and communities. I am your host, Marnie Island. Together, we will explore the fundamental role water plays in the places we live, grow, work and love. Womanjika, welcome to episode one of Making Waves. To get us started, we are delighted to be bringing you an interview with world-renowned Aboriginal water rights academic at ANU, Dr Virginia Marshall, the author of Overturning Aquinalius. We also speak with water engineer and proud Barkaji Womba Womba man, Michael Brown, who's been busily embedding traditional owner and community perspectives into place-based planning and management of water resources in Melbourne. We also have a chat with Joe Flynn, a water reform expert with some really interesting experience bringing together First Nations and corporate perspectives in productive conversations. We will hear the first feature song from Kalaji, an exciting debut album from Nikini sound artist and acclaimed actor, Mark Cole Smith. And we'll bring you a few thoughts from our future water managers. But first, let's meet our co-host, Gunai Kurnai leader, water reform practitioner and all-round lovely bloke, Troy MacDonald. Thanks very much, Marnie. But uh, I think given the uh, surroundings we're in today, it's really appropriate that we kick this intro off with uh, acknowledgement of country. And I'd like to acknowledge today that we're... uh, uh, recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people at the convent in Abbotsford and I would like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge uh, all the work that they are doing on the, their country and the beautiful lands that surround it. My water journey commenced by default, by accident, through some activism that my brother and mother prosecuted in the late 90s, early 2000s around water water rights across Victoria. Mainly what was driven by that was the privatisation of uh, water resource assets across Victoria at that time. That, that was well before there was a traditional owner settlement framework in place here in Victoria. So it was really quite innovative at the time for people to pick up that, this issue and, and run with it. So where that, that's led to, in 2010, the Gunai Kurnai, of, uh, which I'm a member of that organisation and the current chair, uh, where I have stewardship around some of the leadership stuff, really amplified my interest around water because... 
the Gunai Kurnai land and waters Aboriginal corporation did not have actually any rights or access to water. And I thought that was a bit of an anomaly. So the elders that pulled that organisation together really uh, seemed to have water really at the front and square of their focus at that time. So what what's got me to here is I... Um, was lucky enough to get a job in the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning where I collaborated with a couple other people to pull together an Aboriginal water unit. Uh, this predated the Water for Victoria uh, policy initiative of the Labor government of the day and from that grew a greater interest in, in a whole bunch of work really around under, better understanding the connection to waterway health and community health and really identifying the points of intersection around those two domains. So that's a little bit about my background. But Marnie, um, I'm quite interested in about two things around yourself. Your, your professional relationship within the water, water space Obviously, some of the challenges around governance and, uh, and the mystique and the dark, <laughs> the dark forces that sit behind that, as well as your community and citizenship relationship with the water debate. Mm. If you could sort of share some of that stuff. I stumbled into water, but possibly it had always been something, I think, for most people, that you are emotionally attached to. And I think that's why there's such a community interest in water and why it's so vital that it's managed well. I did a formal um, education in environmental engineering and then my very first role was at Melbourne Water and we're going to meet some people that are real technical experts in specialised fields. What I've done throughout my career has been an intentional generalist. Mm. I've I've managed to have some amazing jobs ranging from land development in waterways and drainage, so trying to protect local waterways and whatnot as development occurs or enhance them. I've been out doing things like diversion licensing and environmental flow assessments early in my career. Then I've moved into um, recycled water. Mm. I was called the poo princess for a while and I embraced that. But what I've increasingly, one of the most privileged positions that I covered the most was being asked to work with the National Cultural Flows Research Project. And what I learnt from incredibly high calibre Aboriginal research committee who were essentially my board was what I had to unpack because what I'd been taught through my privileged but not elite background I went to a a public school high school but I'd done I'd done you know very traditional forms of education which had taught me to think a particular way and I had to I had to unpack what I'd learned and rethink it and that together with reflections on what I learnt when I was living in Alice Springs doing the community engagement and project manager of the water reuse scheme there was confronting and I think that's where we are as an industry in Mm. confronting some of the ingrained governance arrangements and really having the skills to have hard conversations about difficult topics and not shying away from them and I think what I'm really keen to do and explore through this this podcast is, I guess, predicated on three tenements that no one person and no one organisation knows everything, particularly about water. 
that inherent rights have never been forfeited. So how do we respect inherent rights as we move forward in the planning and management of water resources? And that community attitudes and objectives are legitimate. And if you're working in a government agency around water management, essentially you're a public servant. So you've got this really delicate balance of taskmasters. You must be a public servant, i.e. serve the public, but you also need to be aware of your ministers who do not want a big blow-up in the media or controversy around mismanaged resources. Yeah, well, I'm extremely um, honoured to be a, par- um, be a part of this podcast with a poo princess. And um, <laughs> the, the, the thing for me... Titles in Victoria are very hard to come by, and I think I think you should milk that one for what it's worth. If I get a crown, I'll feel like I've achieved what I was meant to achieve. Yeah, a, a poo princess OAM. But the, I think um, you raised some really interesting points there uh, around the mystique around governance and how these frameworks did come into place. What are the shared benefits for, for the broader community? What are the benefits from traditional owners? So I think this journey that we're going to embark on, we probably shouldn't get too excited about it because I reckon we're going to need to keep the lid on a few things because we might expose (laughs) a few few warts and um, a few scabby issues here that may be challenging for a lot of people's thought processes. Let's see where we get to. I'm excited. What you'll probably hear me talking about a lot is place-based because I think the jewel that is stitching together a whole range of diverse perspectives to me is underpinned by place yeah yeah look i'm it it has to be come back to that 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 really uh, i don't you know for want of a better word call it that basic level of community activism community engagement has to be that that's where reform is driven from not always driven from a government policy unit uh, or a water corporation's strategic plan it's people have to actually drive change here Mm. and I think what we need to challenge ourselves with is are our water consultative structures and governance structures and our relationships purpose fit to move us into the next generation of thinking our challenge is to is to excite the average punter around water issues locally because the more a community is engaged the more they create an authorising environment that makes it not threatening for yeah. government agencies to do things differently. Yeah. And we want to make it a safe space for everyone to move forward. Yeah, I, I, I think the conversation around water is a little bit more than your, your rates bill. And that's the, the, the reality of the water conversation. For many people in this country, that's where it begins and ends. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've got to share a little bit more broader insights. That's such a wonderful platform for us to launch ourselves from because water affects every element of a person's life every day and people don't even think about it. We do want to make people feel comfortable but we do want to delve into the tough issues. So that being the case, let's see how we go. Some people feel the rain, others just get wet. Let's feel the rain now with Dr Virginia Marshall. Our conversation today is taking place at the Australian National University, located on the country of Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. 
We acknowledge that these lands and waters were never ceded and we pay our respects to Ngunnawal and Nambri elders past, present and emerging. We are incredibly lucky to be speaking with Dr Virginia Marshall today. Dr Marshall is a Rodri Nyemba woman, is a practising lawyer educator and writer. She is the inaugural Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow with the Schools of Regulation and Global Governance and the Fenner School of the Environment and Society of ANU. Virginia's seminal book on Aboriginal water rights, Overturning Aquinellius, was integral to the Murray-Darling Basin Royal Commission in 2019 in its understanding of Aboriginal water issues and ontologies. A lifetime member of the Golden Key International Honour Society and magistrate for the New South Wales Law Society's mock trial competition, Virginia is a partner investigator with an ARC linkage grant, Garawanga, forming a competent authority to protect Indigenous knowledge, to govern and administer a legal framework in order to ensure consent of Indigenous communities is obtained for the access to Aboriginal traditional knowledge and to establish a fair and equitable benefit-sharing mechanism for use of that knowledge. Virginia, that was a long intro, but I think I might have just touched the surface. Could you please um, share with our listeners perhaps a little bit of your water journey? I think that really when I when I look at, you know, what I've done so far, and I, I certainly want to have more and more, many more years to do many more things, but I think it's it's really started with a love for the water, a love for the sea and, and also swimming and feeling that rush of, you know, beautiful salty water around my body and, and I'd always swim far out past the surfers and... You know, just love gradually just to swim back to shore. And it was just really a freedom and also a spirituality attached to being on country. And then also fishing, you know, that wonderful ability to to eat the food that you've actually caught. My boys are very strong on fishing and and they just love it. And, you know, that's just another way of of a spiritual connection to country. So for Aboriginal people... um, uh, like myself and, and, and others, we'd say that you know, that's our identity. A river cuts through rock not just because of its power, but because of its persistence. We'll be hearing more from Dr Virginia Marshall later in the podcast. But first, let's hear from another Aboriginal water practitioner, Michael Brown. So we're back at Abbotsford Conduit. And again, I'll acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners of this beautiful precinct and the land and waters on which it's situated. Sitting here with 14-month-old Elsie and her dad, Michael Brown, who's a, br- a proud Barkindji Womba Womba person, describing himself as an eagle hawk and red-tailed black cockatoo blackfella. He's also a highly qualified, extremely competent water engineer who currently leads the Integrated Water Management Sub-Catchment Planning Team at Yarra Valley Water. His particular skills and perspectives are quite rare in the Australian water sector at the moment. Michael's an alumni of the Emerging Indigenous Executive Leadership Program with the Australian Graduate School of Management and he has an applied understanding of cultural flows assessment, having embedded them into water resources planning processes in a transformational pilot project in the Upper Merry Creek, which is a sub-catchment incorporating the Northern Growth Corridor of Melbourne. All of those formal things are quite impressive, but what's impressed me the most is the transformation Michael has effected with his team at Yarra Valley Water, which has really taken acknowledgements of country from something written 
or recited by rote off a piece of paper into an art form. His team can now do the most amazing acknowledgements of country that will give you goosebumps or bring a tear to your eye. Um, they're meaningful, they're thoughtful, and they just set the scene. So I'm super excited to be hearing from Michael today. Michael, can you perhaps share with us your water story? Yeah, so Melanie, I'd firstly like to also acknowledge the traditional owners of the country we're on, the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung. But then as part of my water story, it started quite young, uh, growing up in rural country New South Wales on Yorta Yorta Wurundjeri land, a small town called Jerildri, which is primarily agricultural country and so quite impacted by drought every now and then. Without realising my affiliation to water as a Barkindji Wamba Wamba person, both of who are river people, I guess I, I landed myself in and a profession that isn't traditionally known as one with water. Uh, so studying engineering, I started to question whether I was in the right um, industry until I was lucky enough to get a cadetship with Sydney Water. And that was when things started to fall into place. I realised I could do a lot more than just structures or roads or bridges and the water seemed to be my passion and it was only in much later years that I then started to feel the connection to the waterways, the understanding of the traditional owners and their relationships to the waterways and the impact that we were having as an industry on those people. Uh, that was what I guess prompted me into furthering my cultural connection uh, as part of the Emerging Indigenous Executive Leadership Program and meeting a whole lot of other Indigenous people who were striving to become leaders within their own industries and organisations. That was what, I guess, started to, to fire me up as, um, how can we do more? What can we do? Um, what can I do? Recognising as one person uh, within the water industry uh, around Melbourne that there are a lot of people looking at this, but are we aligned in where we're trying to head? And I guess that's my water story to date, and I'm still continuing to, to learn more, and I'm fortunate enough to have built some relationships with the elders of Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung, Banarong, Boomerang, Tungurong around Melbourne, but also elders who are living off-country around Melbourne uh, through Mullum Mullum Indigenous Gathering Place as an example. That's wonderful leading to that. The next question I really wanted to ask you, Michael, can you share with us the difference between a traditional owner and maybe another Aboriginal person or entity living on someone else's country? My perspective really is I'm a visitor. So I've been welcomed onto uh, Wurundjeri country and partly because both my work and my, my home are on Wurundjeri country. There's a responsibility in that. In then understanding their laws, their L-O-R-E-S mm -hmm. laws, so that I then can help them pursue and make sure that we're respecting country the way that they see fit. It's not necessarily about bringing my own understanding and cultural understanding and perspectives to try to change this but more try to understand how they align how they work together from my for my own perspective and learning making sure that I respect the traditional owners who have lived on this land for 60,000 plus years. That's fantastic so I know that you've tried to do that in a process that you've piloted in the Upper Mary can you tell us a bit about what's been done there? The subcatchment planning process was piloted with the Upper Mary Creek subcatchment and it's an area I guess that is 
going through a whole lot of change and growth. So in the northern parts of Melbourne, basically from Wallen south to Broadmeadows, we started to look at how we can change the way that we were planning. So Yarra Valley Water together with Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, Melbourne Water, the three councils being the City of Whittlesea, Mitchell Shire Council and Hume City Council, uh, together with the Victorian Planning Authority, we recognise that change has to happen in how we're planning. We need to look at water as its own entity and how we can ensure that it's integral to whatever planning occurs, um, be that through development or agriculture or whatever changes is coming in, because we know that the Victorian government is already looking at these sectors to, to make sure that, that they change. We've been planning in this space for a really long time as organisations, but as traditional owners, uh, we've potentially deliberately kept them out of the loop, making sure that they were really only engaged when it came to cultural heritage management plans, which from my perspective, and it's a personal cultural perspective, I guess, is more around how we can destroy, remove, relocate areas of significance while we still progress planning or development the way that we had traditionally. The process has taken a long time. Um, change does take time. And we're working with change that uh, is effectively looking at policies that have been in place for a number of years. And so at times the process has been challenging. I guess the, the people that I've been able to work with and form relationships both through the project and then within the industry who are aligned to trying to incorporate this change has been exciting. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's something that I, I probably need to remind myself of as to acknowledging the small achievements that we have made because they, they feel small but they probably have actually started conversations happening in a broader industry, not just focusing on the water industry, but now looking at the planning industry or the development industry. And, and at times even coming into health, particularly with the impacts of COVID um, and isolation and how mental health has been aligned to people having access to green and blue spaces. And so I guess that's probably where I'm really excited about what we're trying to do but also then needing to remind myself that it, it can take time and change can take time and we just have to continue bringing people along the journey as frustrating at times as that can be. Oh, I hear you. That is absolutely wonderful perspective. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. We do ask all of our guests this one last question. What's your favourite water song and why? At the moment, there's a, a version of Rain that I think Goanna yeah, right. started with, but Scott... Darrow then did as part of Drought Breakers with Sarah McLeod and Adam Brandt that I, I just love and so yeah that's probably my favourite water song at the moment. Great one off the cuff thank you so much for speaking with this Michael. Not a problem thank you. That was gorgeous little Elsie asserting her thoughts with her dad Michael Brown. Now Let's pick up again with Dr Virginia Marshall and delve into the genesis of her book Aquinolius. This is the seminal work which informed the Royal Commission inquiry into the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and highlights the need for recognition of Aboriginal water rights. Here's Virginia. So many people that I talked to really uh, nailed this for me that Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander people were totally disregarded in the water space, as they had prior to Marbo 1 and 2, the High Court case in, in regards to land. So, you know, it was more of a passion 
to do that overturning Aquinalius. And of course, I I undertook that thesis. I had it conferred. That was exciting. The kids were there and got lovely photos of them all smiling. I think after I'd finished it, I think everybody <laughs> wanted to cry. But, uh, you know, we did that. And then my husband said, well, why don't you go and put this into ANSYS uh, award for, um, for an Indigenous thesis? And I thought, well, okay. And then, of course, I think a week um, before apparently it was announced, I had this letter. It looked more like, you know, Virginia joining um, a Ponzi scheme or something, you know. It was like a pyramid-selling letter. It didn't look like a letter from anything important. And, of course, I said, I think I've just won the AATSIS. And, of course, you know, that that was incredible because that was a unanimous decision by all the judges. And, um, and it freaked me out because I thought, no, here's this young woman that only had four years of high school and here we are so you know and then going to be a lawyer and and practicing and then opening my own firm in 2013 it's it's just been nothing uh, in relation to luck at all it's been sticking to it working hard working beyond you know the the expectations that I had for myself and really having uh, four kids that really know law very well <laughs> and and really understand that in, in their own lives and, and journeys. So, you know, that's really been great for them because um, it, it really empowers young people. And it still continues to be amazing since I, I ended up with the postdoctoral position with ANU as their first um, Indigenous postdoc. So that's been fantastic. And apart from the international work that I do through the IPO, uh, the Indigenous Peoples Organisation. It, it's really, as as you know, very busy. But um, you know, this is why I'm here, and this is the work I love to do. I think what you've you've shared with us in overturning Aquinalius, it's just, it's so engaging and easy to access. What can be a really complex, um, I guess, set of frameworks, policy, water policy. Mm. I mean, it, it's. It's it's really quite um, complex in Australia, and I've just been reflecting on that more and more. That you know, it was a key resource, as I mentioned in the intro with um, Commissioner Brett Walker, mm, and I imagine it's like such a valuable resource for executive leaders in water authorities and catchment management mm. authorities who perhaps they didn't receive these perspectives through their Western education, and they're you know. They're now scrambling to develop their cultural competency. But in this podcast, we're also seeking to engage a broad listing audience, you know, beyond us water boffins. It really is a fascinating read. Can you tell us about perhaps what the key recommendations and the hook might be for the average person in the street? Well, you know, the hook, I think, really is having a book that you can open, you can actually read. That's what I try to break things down. Because remember, I came from a non-law background. So when I think of really communicating to people like me, um, you know, ordinary Australians, just doing things that are a little bit crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think what I, I would really say is that it, it, it is accessible and that was the whole idea to make it really open for Aboriginal communities and Torres Strait Islander communities, but also everybody. And, mm. and I like that. And I also wished I had have put more pictures in there, but law books really <laughs> come with many pictures. Um, so, but I think that the recommendations were things that I, I really could have written more on, but I think I had to keep it basic. And, and because I come from a law reform background, I've 
been a senior legal with the Australian Law Reform Commission on Commonwealth laws and issues to do with social security, income management, the income management I led, uh, and that was really, really important work. But recommendations go hand in hand with law reform. So, you know, one of the reforms is that um, with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan reforms that uh, Aboriginal communities uh, should uh, have themselves leading this process of reviewing water policies and strategies, catchment practices, legislative instruments, and um, uh, all to do with natural resource management and making sure that there are mandatory water requirements for Aboriginal people and also, you know, human rights. They're so important. And we know as human beings, when we're watching the world at the moment, human rights standards are really critical uh, and that people lift their their activities and the way that they conduct themselves. You know, in cases of war, we have to have standards as well. So, you know, it was applying all of these standards in the Water Act, for example, that doesn't even have, the Commonwealth Water Act doesn't even have a human rights instrument in their uh, legislation. So, we have to have water that represents protections for human rights. My book really in Overturning Aquanalia says that Aboriginal people weren't nomadic. You know, they, they weren't mm. foragers. You know, all of that language from anthropology and and law is, is really something we should just not use at all. So, you know, a lot of my recommendations are sensible. And, you know, it's amazing the Murray-Darling Basin Authority staff members that have come up to me and said, look, I've read the whole thing, you know, and really, really been interested. And the the previous CEO had my book and, um, you know, gave it a great review in front of all of their um, the staff members. So this is an existing and living document um, and, and a way to go forward. And I think that that's really important to see that, you know, there's so many people that, really have been discussing, uh, you know, how the difficult it is during the drought um, and how, you know, difficult it is during the floods. And, of course, climate change in general is is also something we have to really realise that's settled uh, science. So, you know, all of those areas, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are on the lowest part of that uh, hierarchy of water. And that's not good enough. You know, we have to have... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Indigenous peoples, First Nations here in Australia, uh, as the first water right to receive. Um, it shouldn't be the lowest common denominator, the special interest, the minority uh, peoples. You know, it, it doesn't matter how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people there are in Australia. It means that, you know, this is the first peoples and we've been here for tens of thousands of years. So we, we just have to really bring people across Australia with us that, it, you know, it's not really going to be acceptable when we really embrace the Uluru Statement from the heart and we embrace more firmly now in, in these coming years human rights and expecting that, you know, our courts address that, our parliaments address the human rights that need to be put in place. And that covers a whole range of issues beyond the brief that I had in Overturning Aquinalius. You know, there's so many issues that I've raised in that book and it, it's just mm. so relevant now and it's more relevant now because we have opportunities to make um, really big, important changes that all Australians can then hold their head up and say, we're really uh, treating and, and embracing um, Indigenous peoples across Australia as right 
pe- people that are really uh, leading us, you know, and standing side by side, not beneath us. And I think that is a really important message. You've got a really great insight into almost two sets of laws. So there's Crown law that's, you know, been brought in the last 200 years. But then there's the acknowledgement of the existing laws that were already operating. And I think that's a really interesting space. Everyone's really trying to get their head around how those two interact with each other. And you see attempts made, but this whole self-determination and respecting inherent rights if you've got department at the start of your name or authority at the back of it there's a lot of yeah we want to do it but at the very last moment letting go of some power seems to be a bit tricky (laughs) oh that's right and you know Um, people are are really in that space and and they've had these organizations or these farms you know for several generations um or, or more but but i always think about this is that you know, to actually have had those those farms and, and those um, areas of land, whether it's the Murray-Darling Basin or whether it's throughout Australia, no matter how far you go back, and, and you can only go back as far as 1788 to the first fleet, that it really means that we're living on land, and, and that includes myself, you know, on, on land uh, of, of another mob, and it's not ours. Um, it, it's it's the communities that lived there or that were pushed off and, and, and made fringe dwellers that were shot out or, again, assimilated in the policies that most people do know with the stolen generations. There's just so much there that really says that, and I, and I really am careful in the way that I would frame this, but, you know, we're all living on stolen land if we're not the traditional owners of that land. Uh, mm. And that really is something that we all have to remember that when we look around you know, wherever we drive, you know, through our local roads or, you know, across the mountains, uh, on waterways, that that Aboriginal people just sort of didn't walk off um, willingly. They just didn't mm. leave their um, spears and their huts and all of their lifestyle, their their obligations to creation stories, the obligation to land and water management and and to um, law, they just didn't walk off and and say, you know, well, take it over. That didn't happen. Mm. And we know that. And we know that across this country. And and it's just so important for us as far as truth-telling goes that we all really share in in these opportunities which are going to come with the federal government and I think that that's really important that it's not out of hate and it's it's not no. out of animosity or bitterness. I think we all have to really just share these stories. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people need to hear this. You know, I'm sitting in front of a bookcase with so many different books about old people, elders that um, from our communities that have really provided incredibly sad and and, and difficult mm. stories and you know that trauma here especially for first peoples has never been healed in the way it should as a national experience and a national healing that that's critical and it's critical that all of the institutions and you know the pastoralists the farmers the the the, the water organizations the CEOs 
across the country and, and other people who have had their wealth from Aboriginal resources, they mm-hmm. haven't created those resources. Those resources were looked after by Aboriginal people and, and they they play a part in the creation story of, of those places. So digging stuff out of the ground is not creative. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you can't compare that to... Um, incredible works, say, for example, by Deborah Cheatham, you know, in, in writing an opera, yes. um, amazing yes. um, Aboriginal soprano. And, you know, that's creative. That's amazing. That's unique. But, you know, if I could just yeah. get a little spade and go out to the garden and dig, dig a little <laughs> hole, it doesn't take much to actually dig that little hole and put the plant there. Mm. So I'm just, you know, really um, talking about those sort of issues that, make us you know, more a family walking forwards. And I think that's what we yeah. need. Yeah. And I love how you've talked about creativity there because I'm seeing no, no to Gimby IPA wetland, which is one of the research sites for the Cultural Flows Research Project. I'm seeing Watercorp businesses with gubbins growing with recycled water and broom. I'm seeing as people start to get creative about trying to do things better into the future, those little ones that were pilots or examples, you're hoping it's going to become a tsunami because, you know, you put your creative hats on and the opportunities are there. That's right. That's right. And that's where I've been been devoting a lot of my time in the past 11 years in the Kimberley and my husband's been writing submissions and giving this opportunity for Mm -hmm. us to be involved and and be guided by community and what they what they yeah. really do want. And and I think that that really works so well. And and I think most of all is these processes need to be so much easier for Aboriginal people to apply and Torres Strait Islander people to apply because they're very, very difficult. Making an application to Indigenous Business Australia, I've heard from most people, they're just too difficult. And I think mm. that we... We need to encourage livelihoods. We need to really devolve the power back to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to make decisions for themselves. And, you know, many comments that I've read through, you know, old parliamentary Hansard that says, well, we're quite happy for you to have the land or the waters back when you prove you can manage it. And that's really bizarre because when you pick up the biggest estate on earth by Bill Gamage from ANU, you know, a really amazing book which has so much archive material and observations by people mm-hmm. who came from Europe post-1788 had said mm-hmm. it was so well managed. They just That's walked right. into a, a garden, everything looked ordered and mm. it wasn't chaos. It shows that all of the, the work and the land management and the water management that was undertaken by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people was exceptionally good. An exceptionally powerful statement on the best practice for environments to be yeah. um, managed, and and that's why I think that you know we have conservation and uh, you know how how should we manage the environment? Well, you don't have to look very far. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have that best practice, but they've been pushed out by land development, uh, and we're talking post seventeen eighty eight land grants. Yeah. Um, Aboriginal yep. people have been pushed out as as fringe dwellers. Um, you know, there's there's so much to be understood. They were rounded up in those early days as musters uh, and moved yeah. from from their particular area of of their traditional lands and waters to somewhere else. It's just become so 
obvious how much can be learnt from the holistic approach that is traditional knowledge. And I guess that's what we're trying to share through this podcast. I mean, everyone just, it's so exciting what we can do if we move forward together and we we learn from, you know, the oldest living culture on the planet. That's right. But at the same time, the pace of change seems incredibly slow sometimes. That's right. We seem to have challenges unpicking the mistakes of the last 200 years. Just yeah. as we sort of bring bring this sort of conversation to a conclusion, how do you see the water sector changing? What are the lessons that we can be perhaps learning around grassroots action we've seen around climate change because essentially grassroots action around climate change needs water. I know that from being involved as at COP26 last year in Scotland where I was asked to go over as the UN delegate for the Pacific to the, the local Indigenous community meetings and I think that when climate change is argued as uh, well is climate change existing or not that's something we've got to immediately say, no, it is happening. We know that with the floods in Lismore and the North Coast, we know um, the intensity that's happening in central Australia, temperatures that have never been experienced before, heating events. We're capturing floodplain water and giving it a price and, and uh, seeing it as, as, as a property right. We, we're not taking into account incredible evaporation from uh, dam storage. Uh, you know, we, we're really living beyond our means. So I think we really need to come together in truth-telling um, mode that we really like areas across Australia that we don't just see ourselves as really conducting billion-dollar or million-dollar businesses in water and we're not really worried about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We don't need to think about those issues. Actually, we do. We need to think about it really carefully. Because the knowledge, the gillers, the soaks, all of the knowledge of surviving this country and living on this country in Australia is held by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we, we need to, as Australians, realise that very quickly. And we have to start and work together very quickly. And we can't just have more reports and we can't just have more um, committees. Uh, you know, it's, it's really... The, the committee that, that I'm on currently, um, one is uh, CSIRO's Indigenous Futures Committee and the other one is the National Water Initiative, CAWI, which is the Committee on Aboriginal Water Interests and, and that is to deal with the reforms for the National Water Initiative, which is the blueprint of water in Australia. Now, if no jurisdiction can really prioritise Indigenous rights and Indigenous water interests through these different processes uh, that we're going through at the moment in the next 12 months, I don't know how we're all going to uh, really go forward. It's really going to be dreadful, not only, as I said, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, but it's going to be uh, chaos in Australia. So we really need to be compassionate. We really need to, to really compromise our positions and really reframe, uh, redesign, rethink the way that we actually are holding water in very many different ways. The, the worst situation was that we allowed the separation from uh, uh, land and water to occur. You know, it didn't in increase a better water usage. Uh, it's just created a lot of people who have 
much more water rights than others, have also much more money than others. It, it really has created a big difference between us and them. And, and it's affected and it continues to affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So, you know, my, my request is that we just really come together and, and make really important changes. You know, it's happening around us with gas and it's happening with coal. So water has to, has to be right up there. We need to really address this and really urgently, as urgently as climate change. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm hearing there that we need to stop talking water reform, which exactly. has been happening for right. a long time, and, mm-hmm. and make it happen. That's right. But so it's been so wonderful hearing from you, Virginia. We've got our wonderful final question we always love to ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's pretty hard hitting. What's your favourite water song and why? One of my favourite songs is Archie Roach and Ruby Hunter, The Water Song. That's really beautiful. I heard it again when I was um, flying to the the Kimberley and it was just so beautiful and so special. That's really important to me. And, you know, I just think that songs uh, and just listening to to, uh, waves and the water and uh, that, really conjures up to me you know you can listen to it on on your iphone um it's just so beautiful and and how could we actually be without listening to that rain on a tin roof and how yes. could we stop <laughs> listening to that beautiful rush of the waves as they come you know onto that beautiful sand you know if, if that all stopped how less of a person will we all be that's yes. what i think so beautiful you know some people call it mother nature but we call it home so Nurembang, that's our home. And I think that's really important to remember. And still have hope. Get up with hope every day. What a beautiful way to finish, Nurembang. Thank you so much for your time, Virginia Marshall. Thank you. Manangul. Wow, so much to ponder there. Thanks so much to Dr Virginia Marshall from the Australian National University. We are pinching ourselves. We are so incredibly fortunate in this first series of Making Waves to be featuring music from the self-titled debut album by Nyakina sound artist and acclaimed actor Mark Cole-Smith. Inspired by the Nyakina word for whirlwind, Kalaji is a dreamlike arrangement of wandering analogue synthesis and delicate acoustic sampling. I reckon you're going to be blown away. Check it out on Bandcamp. Our first song in episode one is... Nagari.
bust last night and fired a flight, but I'll be right. Our desires have left this tired system wide, the great divide. Let's hear a word from perhaps our future water managers. Hello, what's your name and how old are you? Odette and I'm five. Hi Odette, can you tell us why water is important? Because if we didn't have water we wouldn't live. That's true. Why does it support how we live? Because we have to drink. So when you turn your tap on at home, where has the water come from? The earth. The earth? Mm-hmm. How, how does that happen? So the rain comes and then it goes into the earth and then it goes into our taps. Wow. And at the other end of, of the scale, what happens when you flush the toilet and the water and the waste goes somewhere? It goes into the earth again. Wow, whole circle. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Uh-huh. That sure is. I hear another little voice over there. Yeah. What's your name and how old are you? No, and I'm seven. You're seven, vote. Why do you think water's important? Because you can't survive without it. That's true. At home, when you turn on your tap, where did your water come from? Water comes from the clouds. It does. Thanks to the students from the Dharma School in Dalesford, who are so fortunate to be able to be involved in bush school. They get to go on a place-based immersion every week, learning about the physical environment the social, cultural and historical aspects of where they are, but particularly engaging with local Indigenous people and knowledge as an integral part of their education. And now, let's hear from a man some of you may remember from a while back. A man with much water insight, who we are sadly not leveraging fully at the present, the wonderful Joe Flynn. So it's about, what, 12 degrees? And you're having a swim, Joe. Yeah. <gasps> and he's under. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh now the, the wind is blowing, that freezing cold wind. <laughs> oh. My name is Joe Flynn. Uh, if I was to formally intro- introduce myself in, in, a, in a marae or in, in a Maori ceremony, I'd be introducing 
my mum's whakapapa, her heritage, her home marae, and her home river, being the, the Tolaga River. And, and in a Maori world, we don't own rivers. R- rivers own us, and rivers shape us. And, and I can feel that, just, just reminding myself of that. Even standing here next to a reservoir and castle, mate. Yes, yes. It's all water. And, and there's a couple of other threads of water. Mm. One is I've, I've lived with depression for about 20 years ago, and some, someone pointed out to me the benefit of uh, getting in for an icy dip, and it really is remarkable. Here we are today, I'm guessing the water temperature generally sits at around 7 degrees in winter. Uh, I think the water temperature would be somewhere around 7 to 10 degrees. It's cold. But it's just the most remarkable, refreshing thing I can do. My brain loves it, so I've just been for a dip. I've <laughs> swum in snow and ice around the world and, and never never been able to drive past some inviting water. Joe, what is your water story? Wow. <laughs> There's a few threads to that when I think of that. I think of my earliest days. I was born in the Solomon Islands and life on a daily basis was about swimming in rivers, beautiful, clear, sparkling, tropical island rivers, rainfall of up to three metres a year. So water and growing up in Solomons was a big part. On my mum's side, I'm uh, Ngāti Paro from the east coast of uh, the North Island of New Zealand with a home marae, marae of Hoati Marae in Tolaga Bay. A- another thread of my water story was... Um, in the 90s, uh, I just started to become aware of, uh, in the early 90s, of climate change and wanted to do my little bit. And that saw me get involved with uh, water and rivers. And uh, I was lucky enough to be the CEO of an organisation called Australian Inland Energy and Water. We were the water provider for Broken Hill and had some influence on the on the Darling River and one of the many stakeholders in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. So at a very, very, I can say almost brutal, mm. at a very sharp level, my life was impacted by trying to supply water to the Broken Hill community from a dying river, which um, had so much extracted from it by the time it arrived uh, uh, at Lake Wetherall, which is uh, just out of uh, part of the Menindee Lake system, um, and we had to turn this stagnant, brown, ridiculously high salinity, ridiculously high carbon content water, had to try and purify it and make it safe and provide it to Broken Hill. And uh, in some sense, I, I was a CEO responsible for that. And in some sense, I've, uh, I failed because... Um, the water was unfit for consumption. And the community felt that, and uh, I was part of the part of those responsible that were failing the land and, and failing the community and how we were caring for water. That was 20 years ago. So there's mm. been been a few threads, and, and one other thread of water was uh, I was lucky and fortunate enough. I've worked as a facilitator of strategy and helping organisations plan and come together and get on the same page. And I worked with the um, Southern Rivers community of First Nations peoples who... um, There's a Northern First Australians River Group and a Southern um, First Australians River Group and they cover the vast area of the Murray-Darling Basin. And I was honoured enough to help and work with them 
for a few years helping them with some of their their planning of what water water meant for them so yeah a few threads to water uh, it's certainly been a big part of shaping my life do you look back now and you, you spoke about regret I suppose you have with Broken Hill but what were some of the highlights and the lowlights? In Broken Hill oh, we almost achieved 100% water recycling and this was 20 years ago so the water went down your tap in the kitchen and the toilet and the shower uh, purify that and make it safe it still had high salt content but it, all, all the uh, E. coli and and other, other things had been removed from it, so it was safe, salty water, and that water was recycled and used by the mines and used by the golf club, and th- that was great, you know. We, we were leading the way in some way in, in terms of water reuse uh, 20 years ago. That would be the, the highlight when I think, so, think of water in the Broken Hill days. It was, it was a great step. You've spoken about uh, your New Zealand heritage, of course, but you also had an interesting chapter there that we were hoping to hear a bit more about as well. Yes, uh, in 1994, to just one particular project which is worth highlighting, uh, I was actually working for a a, a renewable energy company and and I had an economic development responsibility and... um, a few different conversations with different people, including with, with a local iwi, the, the Ngāti Toa and the Ngāti Apa in uh, southern Manawatu, uh, trying to understand what some of their aspirations are around energy and water, and connected a few dots, and, and it just became very clear that there was an opportunity to take the environmental responsibility that defines some of the... Treaty of Waitangi, the, the treaty between the British Crown and, and uh, New Zealand Maori from 1840, uh, where there's an environmental responsibility uh, and authority given to Maori, to broaden that and say, well, what does that mean in this day and age with rivers? And we developed that into thinking, well, the economic management of rivers. Uh, New Zealand government was going through privatisation of energy. There was a small hydro power station uh, just out of Otaki and we bought uh, and, and I don't want to overstate that I, I was just one small part of a team that mm. figured out if we can bring the iwi together bring the merchant bankers together and see if we could make a bid with Maori economic ownership uh, part of buying a hydro power station off the New Zealand government and taking on the environmental uh, management of a, of a river and part of that was developing what the iwi needs were, so that was about downstream eel health and how we can restore streams and creeks to a condition where, interestingly, they weren't too fast-flowing. Fast-flowing was a problem. We need the waters need to be a little slower moving. But to um, to support eels, which are a, a big part of, or important part of uh, a traditional Maori food source, and obviously do the, the economic part of uh, managing a hydro power station. And uh, yeah, it was a hugely rewarding, rewarding project and working with the iwi over six months. What do you think were some of the pivotal aspects of that that made it a success? There weren't any boardrooms really involved. <laughs> ah, a, a, yes, no, early days and it was, uh, you know, I was trying to connect the dots and connect this merchant banking corporate world and electricity <laughs> companies and the iwi and... Uh, came up very rapidly with we weren't going to invite people to meet in some grey corporate 
boardroom. Let's do it where the iwi, uh, the Maori elders, uh, felt most comfortable and threw some ideas around and it was Saturday morning just after dawn by the river mouth where there would typically be fishing, a fry up of some fish and then we can sit around and talk. So we did that for almost five months on a f- every fortnight on a Saturday morning. We'd really? meet down there and it was so great. Yeah, yeah mm. visibly the, the corporate grey suits way <laughs> out of their comfort zone and it was slowed down. It was, the food was involved, um, catching fish was involved. And then once we'd got through those important pieces, um, maybe a couple of hours later, uh, talks could start around what we're trying to do with this project. And it was so great, just uh, it wasn't accidental, it was conscious. How do we approach and redesign the power imbalance? When I say power imbalance, the local Maori iwi, not coming from a business or corporate or government background, quite the opposite, feeling uncomfortable in some of those settings. How do we shift that power? And uh, yeah, sitting on the beach around a fire, frying up some fish and then having a chat was one great step t- towards doing that. And the elders were pretty clear that uh, it might take even longer than five months as well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I remember on the very first morning sitting down and uh, we're just asking some initial getting to know sort of questions. I said, you know, t- tell me some things we really need to know. If we're going to make this work, what do we really need to know? And uh, I remember this uh, local elder saying, look, Joe, you need to know, the first thing is, any meeting, it's got to start with food. (laughs) (laughs) And if you think you can just come along to a meeting and talk, that, that that's just not going to work, and and it was true. So so there was always it's food involved at the start, <laughs> and, and and I said, and, and and anything else that you know really need to know. And he says, well, the other thing, Joe, you got to know that if we're still sitting here talking in 25 years, that's all right. <laughs> We've been here a while, and we don't mind a talk. So uh, you know, just 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 slow down a bit and make sure we have time to talk. And uh, that that was such wise words because I think so much in the corporate and in Mm -hmm. government and political world can sort of be really driven by artificial deadlines when really so much of what we're dealing with is just a blink in the eye of of this, um, you know, the age of our earth and and then the shaping of landscape and rivers. And yeah, I think we create some artificial timelines and time for deeper, slower conversation rather than the somewhat superficial consultation efforts we go through. So really five months wasn't too bad, given those it, sort of parameters, really? A, absolutely. <laughs> for, for five months. But, but, but it's the sort of thing, that, you know, and I've been involved in other projects mm. in my time, it's the sort of thing that might be in, done in a corporate, more typical world with four weeks of submissions being received. And, you know, and, and they often can't be video submissions. They have to be written submissions. And... We just need to rewrite that sort of thinking and, mm. you know, submissions maybe of five months of sitting on the beach having a chat. Is there some things that we can learn from an Australian context here? I know this is decades ago, Joe, but isn't it interesting that New Zealand has gone down this path and really Australia is needs to be getting on to that same path? Oh, and, and, and to, to emphasise... There's so much that is unique to Australia and so much that is mm. unique to New Zealand, so we should respect that. And, and and I'd hate to think that in any way it's about blowing New Zealand's trumpet. Mm. However, there are some things that can be learned. And, yes. and, and one of them is just going back, 
you know, at a systemic and structural level where, where engagement is important uh, and consultation, discussion, and, and consultation just says it so lightly, it needs to be a deep two-way engagement and sharing of understanding and, and being able to articulate each other's needs and, and slowing that down and rethinking how you do that structurally. And structurally, it can be about bringing different government departments together. I think if we're going to solve so many aspects of climate change and how we manage the environment, you can't have someone over there from the minister for working to reporting to the minister for resources and someone over there reporting to the minister for environment or water or and and other aspects of that. Some of those structures need to sit together and and certainly sit together in an open discussion forum that feels safe and and empowers and shifts that power balance between uh, grassroots groups and First Nations people, get corporates out of their grey corporate meeting rooms, (laughs) go and get uncomfortable and sit on the land and don't do it for an hour or two as a sort of token (laughs) gesture. Do it slowly and repeatedly and really think about how we can shift and deepen and slow down uh, what it means to listen and what it means to understand each other. Yeah, and then do, do that ta- tangibly. Slow it down, go and sit on the land and, and go and sit on whoever's country it is and, and where they are, have their power, where, where you can go and learn. I say you, where you, the, mm. the corporate, the water bureaucrat, who, whoever you are, where you can go as a student and learn. And if that makes you squirm, Good. I think we learn when we squirm. Difficult conversations, Joe. So we shouldn't be avoiding those. Really embracing them. Oh, more than embracing them, um, slowing them down, and 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 mm. digging into them deeper and slower. Yes. That's yeah. how you solve these big yeah. issues. I mean, Aquinalius is really only just <clears throat> coming onto the radar now, really, and. Of course, there are complications in an Australian context and there's many Aboriginal nations, but yes, conversations are the start. Yes, and, and conversations, and, and just, just going back to that point about, you know, and rethinking the power to approach it as a student, not to approach it as a teacher or in any way someone who's bearing a solution to this. I think so much of how corporate and government Australia engages with First Nations as they sort of come with this preconceived idea that you know if you can just be a bit more like us we can be a teacher and we can figure this out throw that out the window have some humility and, uh, <laughs> and learn. So Joe, from Broken Hill you you moved on you actually stayed with water for a bit longer what what happened from there? I had the incredible good fortune to head up an organisation called the Water Industry Alliance. Uh, it had about 300 members, um, organisation members, universities, researchers, uh, private organisations, government departments, water utilities. So it was, it was a very broad uh, representation. It was based in Adelaide and it had South Australian membership. It, that that was actually the catalyst for a, a further step. I became the startup CEO and founder of an organisation called Water Australia. And Water Australia was was a, a fabulous idea. Uh, it it was to prove not long lasting, but the idea was 
We all fought, fight about water when it's in our backyard. You know, in Broken Hill, the Broken Hill people were blaming the people in Burke. The people in Burke were blaming <laughs> the people upriver from them and so on. Um, and you had the, the farm versus urban. You had irrigators versus uh, other water users. You had all these, you know, if we can call them stakeholders, but just all these people who divided and saw the differences rather than saw the common ground. And, and I was... Um, thinking about that in this group called the Water Industry Alliance and thinking, how do we have some more useful conversations? And out of that thinking came an organisation called Water Australia. And, and Water Australia um, had organisation members, so it wasn't individuals, so it was um, you know the National Water Commission and Sydney Water and um, uh, some of the large water utilities and, and researchers and government departments uh, who were responsible for water policy and regulation. We achieved something about 250 members, and, and the, the, the key part of what that organisation was about, Water Australia, was we have better conversations when we're overseas <laughs> than we do when we're on this island called Australia where we fight about it. Get overseas, meet someone at some uh, water meeting, conference, trade mission, and... and the conversations change so much. Why so, do you think that is, Joe? I think there's something in the human spirit. You, as a traveller, um, when you travel overseas and and um, you meet a, someone from your region or city, and there's sort of a bonding. It might be someone that you'd pay no attention to if you were to pass them in the street of Brisbane or wherever you may live, but um, meet them in. Uh, Uzbekistan, and, and, and there's a fondness for some sort of kindred spirit and, and, and common ground. Uh, I think that there's something about that, and also there's something about being safe. You're away from the political the missteps of saying the wrong thing that might end up on the mm. front page, and a conversation on the back streets of Tel Aviv or the back streets of Delhi or back streets of Mexico City at three o'clock in the morning over a, the local food you might still mm. be nibbling on can connect people in a way where conversations can't connect and find common ground when they're held in Australia. So, so, so the idea for Water Australia was mm. to take our, our policy learnings and our policy stuff-ups, what we'd learnt about water and something that makes Australia quite distinctive on an international setting mm. is how relaxed we are about talking about our stuff-ups in a way that a lot of other countries don't. And while we're doing it, have common ground conversations between irrigators and and uh, urban authorities and regulators and private yeah. sector. In you a had way. some high-profile people there too, didn't you? Yeah, We sure <laughs> did. Yes, I, I vividly remember having the um, two state water ministers... CEO of Sydney Water and various others, uh, researchers, mm. uh, CEOs of water technology companies, on a, on more than more than one occasion, meeting up in in Mexico City and sharing tacos at you know, <laughs> one o'clock in the morning in some side street, <laughs> and, and yeah, and the the, the level and uh, frankness of the conversation that you can have in an environment like that, I thought was really healthy. Well, the unfortunately, Water Australia is no more, though, Joe. So do you have hope that we can sort out some of these big water problems and issues that we have in Australia that still seem to be around us? That's right. Unless they deal with the structural, uh, where the 
power lies in a structural sense, whether that's government departments, whether it's the different fiefdoms that sit underneath different ministers, or whether it's the different industry organisations, um, the organisation that represents water utilities versus the organisation that represents water engineering professionals versus the n n name your other one. They're there to protect their own patch and their own environment and make sure they get their share, fair share or perhaps more than their fair share of resources. And that, and that creates competition. It doesn't encourage unity or collaboration. And uh, yeah, Water Australia kicked off with some very successful meetings and promotion of Australia, Australia's waters experience internationally. And then... Uh, closed doors within four years as the um, other water industry organisations responded and saw it as a threat and manoeuvred to, to whatever, make sure that that, that, that um, membership wasn't sending their dollars to Water Australia, it needed to, to support their own base. And, and, and I think there's something in that around our broader response to climate change, that whilst we have fiefdoms, whether in a in a business where you might have finance versus, you know, over in some other management respons responsibilities, environment and, and, and well-being, when you've got those competing um, silos in an organisation or in a government sense, they might be sitting in different departments under different ministries, I don't think we're going to solve some of these challenges unless we solve them structurally and, and give bureaucrats working working under different ministers incentives to collaborate or give managers working under a CEO but, but responsible for different silos in an organization give them motivations to collaborate I think some of these some of our progress is going to remain slow thank you very much Joe uh, just to wind up we do uh, always ask our interviewees if they have a favorite water song oh it's a song by the Mutton Birds uh, called Anchor Me. Yeah, Anchor Me by the Mutton Birds. Anchor Me in your deep blue sea. Thank you for joining us on Making Waves, Joe. Thanks, Nance. Gotta love a producer with a couple of Walkleys under her belt. That was Nance Haxton chatting with Joe Flynn. We extend our sincere gratitude to the Water Services Association of Australia and the nine water authorities who gave the support and creative licence for this podcast. Thank you City West Water, Hunter Water, Icon Water, SA Water, Sydney Water, Taz Water, Unity Water, Water Corp and Yarra Valley Water. Thanks also to ex-UK pop star James Henderson for our beautiful theme music and thank you so much for our awesome producer and special guest interviewer, Nance Haxton. We hope this has whet your appetite. Troy and I look forward to chatting with you in the next episode of Making Waves. Series 1 of the Making Waves podcast was created over a two-year period spanning mid-2020 to mid-2022. The views and perspectives presented are those of the individuals speaking. They do not necessarily represent the views of the organisations associated with individuals or the funders and supporters.